If you are new or visiting tonight, my name is Aaron. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. And those of you joining us online tonight, again, we love you. We're glad that we have this opportunity to have an online experience. But remember, it's a tool. It's not a substitution. There's nothing like gathering together with the body. We've been in this Life of Christ journey, and we're actually wrapping it up this week. Tuesday is day 100 of Life of Christ, and it'll be the last day of this journey that we've been on as a church family. And we've learned a lot about who Jesus is, and not just the things that Jesus did, but the things that Jesus said. What did Jesus say, and what did he mean by what he said, and what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What, what does that, that mean? And, and I want to invite you as we close this whole life of Christ journey, for those of you that have always had this dream or desire, one of the things we're going to do in this fall as we wrap up life of Christ is we are going back to Israel with a Holy Land tour with Mark Turnage. So if you've enjoyed Mark from the morning text messages, his teaching, and the way he's able to explain things, he is a modern-day Indiana Jones. He is a biblical archaeologist, Old Testament historian. If you thought he was good in the text messages every day, there's nothing like being with him on the ground in Israel as you're walking through the different locations. This was our, our tour our 2019, two years ago. We're sitting on the southern steps there of the temple in Jerusalem. These are the steps that the disciples and Jesus went up and down many, many times when they came and went from the temple. We were able to receive communion right there on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. It was one of the most powerful experiences, just, just sitting there reflecting on what Jesus did right there in that area. Just a powerful, powerful time. And so if this has ever been in your heart or a dream or desire of yours, we're going back. You can register on our website. And when you register, you're not committed to go. Registration, all that means is you're getting the information for the actual dates, the flight times, where we're doing, what we're going to be, how much it costs, all of that is on the registration link. So if you just click on that and say you're interested, you'll get all the information and then you can make the decision whether you want to join us this fall as we go back to Israel to tour the Holy Land. Well, as I said, we've been looking at what it means to be a follower. Now, right before Jesus left earth, you know, one of, one of the cool things when you think about God is God is a trinity. Now, the trinity is a concept that is impossible for the human mind to fully comprehend. I, I don't fully comprehend this. I accept it by faith. I don't fully understand it. There's a lot of things I accept by faith I don't fully understand. I don't understand how electricity works, but I accept the fact that every time I turn the light switch, lights come on. And so it works for me. I don't, I don't understand it, but I accept it. Trinity is like one of those concepts. God is one person, but he's three individual people. Again, that doesn't, I don't fully get that. He's three individual people, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but he's three in one. So he's three people who are actually one person. Now, the way it works right now for us is Jesus was on planet Earth. God, the, the Son, the physical body, human body on Earth, and then at the end of his life, he goes up to the Father. The Father is sitting on the throne in heaven. Jesus now is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then he left us his spirit. So the very spirit of Jesus is here on earth living inside of us. Now, what's really cool about this is every time you pray on earth, I want you to think about this. Every time you say a prayer on earth, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. So when you pray 
on earth. Jesus takes your prayer, this is his job in heaven, and he gives it personally. So, so Jesus actually gives your prayer to the Father. He says, Dad, so-and-so is asking for this, and I've been there. It's not easy. It's tough. I've gone through stuff like that. Let, let's help him out. That's his job, is he's making intercession for you. So you have an advocate. You have somebody who is pleading your case to the Father every time you pray in heaven. And what's cool about it is the Father loves you too. So it's not like he has to plead the case all that hard because the, the dad's crazy about you. Jesus is crazy about you. And then you've got his spirit who's the greatest prayer partner in the world. So the kind of the way it works in my life is I go to the Holy Spirit. What should I be praying? Like, here's what I want to pray. What do you think I should be praying? Like, what do I really need? What do I really want? Well, what should I really be doing? What should I really be asking God for? And so I have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. We talk through really what I should be praying. And then I give that prayer to Jesus. And then Jesus takes it to the Father. And then all of a sudden, things begin to happen and prayers get answered. And God begins to move in my life. And that's kind of the process. I just thought that was a really cool thought. I hope that helps you kind of understand you know, the dynamic of, of God. So Jesus, he's now at the right hand of the Father. But right before Jesus left earth, he gave us some final marching orders, some final directives. For those of us that have committed our life, those of us that call him Lord, you are Lord, you're in charge, you're ruler, you're master, I'm born again, I'm following you, I'm a disciple. He gave us some final direction right before he left earth. And as Christians, we call it the Great Commission. The Great Commission, and you see it in three different places. I'm going to show you one of them tonight, Matthew 28. Here's, here's his final marching orders for those of us that are followers. Therefore, go. Go. Go where? Go anywhere. Go anywhere. Go, go do anything anywhere for me and my name. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them. That's one of the things we did this morning. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So we have this mandate on our life. We have this great commission. It's not optional. It's, it's who we are as followers. It's who we are as disciples to go and tell people about Jesus and help them become disciples like we're disciples and help them understand everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus did so that they can follow him with their life the way we're following him with our life. And here's the beautiful promise he makes. He says, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. How many of you would love to live a life where Jesus is always with you? Like he's always with you. He never leaves your side. He's always there every day, every second. Well, he says, go and I'll be with you. Go and I will always be with you. So the mark of a Christian life, the mark of a follower of Jesus is somebody who lives on go. We live on go. We are always going, going to our neighbors, going to our coworkers, going to the people we see at the gym, the people we see at the grocery store, family members. We live our life on go. And, and let me put it like this. If Jesus was here today, and he can help us understand this, because for some reason here in America, we, we've kind of made this optional. We, we, we kind of have looked at this and said, well, that, that's a gift for some people in the body of Christ. I don't have that gift. That's not, that's not what I do. I, I do other things for God, but, but that's not, that one's not on my plate. That's on somebody else's plate. So if Jesus was here, he would say it like this. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. He's not saying, hey, here's a good idea for you. Here's a good suggestion for your... No, he said, this is a commission. It's a mandate. 
I'm asking you to go. This is what it means to follow me, to go. And Jesus was so passionate about this that not only did he leave us these marching orders as kind of the very last thing he did, but he began his ministry with this also. Go back to the very beginning of his ministry when he first started calling disciples to follow him. If you go back to Matthew 4, it says, And Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So you got these two guys who are fishermen. They're out doing their job. They're working hard. They're, they're, they're fishing. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you. Now, don't answer it out loud if you know the answer. Follow me and I'm going to make you. Now, I want you to think about this. If you had never read this before, if you didn't know what the answer was, Jesus is about to tell you, here's what it's going to look like to follow me. Here's what the Christian life is all about. Here's what it means to be a disciple. If you commit to me, if you follow me, if you come with me on this journey and you allow me to be the Lord of your life, I'm going to make you into, I'm not going to leave you the way you are. I'm going to turn you into something. I'm going to make something out of you. What do you think Jesus is going to say? I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to make you a good Christian. I'm going to make you a better father, a better mother. I'm going to make you a better husband, better wife. I'm going to I'm going to make you into somebody that has inner peace and, and you're just calm about life. I'm going to make you into someone that's joyful. He's describing what it means to be his follower. What do you think he's going to say? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to call him Lord? What does it mean to be a disciple? Look at this. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. I'm going to teach you how to fish. I'm going to teach you how to catch people for the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to understand, he didn't teach this at a Bible college. Like He's not, he's not training Bible college students who are going to go into the missionary ministry one day. He's talking to fishermen. In reality, he's talking to every follower of Christ throughout all time and all generation. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because followers fish. Followers fish. If you're fishing, you're following. If you're not fishing, you're not following. And the one thing I know about fishermen, my, my wife's stepdad is a, or yeah, my wife's stepdad, he's a professional fisherman in Texas, bass fisherman. Fishermen love to show off their fish. If you ever been around a fisherman, they, they love to tell you how big the fish was, what it was like reeling him in. They just, they love to tell you about their fish. So let me ask you a question. If you're a follower of Jesus, show me your fish. Tell me about the last fish you caught for the kingdom. Do you know what I'm saying? Because followers fish. It's a mark of Christianity. It's not optional. Everything as a church that we do is all about fishing. Last summer when COVID began, we began a food drive where we were feeding thousands of people here in our community of North County. But I want you to understand it was never about food. It was always about Jesus. It was always about Jesus. We were helping families with food because it was a, it was a tough season. There was a lot of job loss and financial insecurity and tough times that a lot of people went through. And we wanted to provide extra food to support families and to support houses and to, to support people. But it was always about, it was always fishing. 
The, the food was just the lure. You know, if you're a fisherman, you got to use the right type of lure to catch the right type of fish. The food was just the lure to catch people and help them understand Jesus. I think about Otto, who was baptized today with his daughter. Both of them came through the food drive and found Jesus in the process. It's been an incredible experience to see what God is doing. It's powerful, but it's all about fishing. Go, go. Again, if you're going to call him Lord, he gets permission to call the shots in your life. Paul put it like this. The most important thing. What is the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing? What's the one thing you won't compromise? You won't sacrifice? You won't let anybody else mess with? Like, like you're not messing with this. God, you can have everything else, but don't touch that. What's the most important thing in your life? What's that one part of your life that you build everything else around that takes priority? Could be a hobby. Could be a family event. Could be career. Could be money. What is, that, what is the most important thing to you? Paul says the most important thing for me is that I complete my mission, the work that the Lord Jesus gave me to tell people the good news about God's grace. Why? God expects me to pass it on. I want you to think about it like this. There, there was a time where you didn't know any of this. Those of you that are believers, you didn't know that there was a loving God in heaven who sent his son to die on a cross so that you could be saved, that you didn't have to live with guilt and condemnation and shame. You could be eternally forgiven and have an eternal home with God in heaven. There, there was a time you didn't know that at all. And somebody told you. Somebody, you may have been a four or five-year-old child and it was a parent who brought you to church, but somebody told you. And God has this expectation that you then tell other people. I think about Joseph Amari. He was a, a warrior in Africa, in a small village in Africa, Western Africa, very remote area, and he was one of the village warriors. And one day, Joseph Amari was walking out on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, Africa, and he runs across somebody who got a hold of the Great Commission and said, yes, God, I'll go wherever you sent me. And he wound up in Africa on this dirt road, crossing paths with his village warrior. And he shares with Joseph Amari this incredible good news that there is a God, Joseph, that loves you so much that he allowed his son to come and live on earth for you, to die for you, to pay for all of the bad things you've ever done so that you could be forgiven forever and have a home secure in heaven. And Joseph was so overcome with joy at hearing this good news that there would be a God that would love him that much, that a God would allow his son to die in his place. He was so overcome with joy, he could not wait to get back to his village and share this incredible good news with everybody in his village. He goes back to his village so excited because this good news just captivated his heart. He received Jesus and he couldn't wait to share it with other people. Goes back to his village and he shares this good news and they get angry and filled with rage. The men of the village hold him down while the women of the village whip him and beat him with barbed wire strands. They beat him so bad they thought they killed him. They drug him outside the village and they left him in a ditch to die. He woke up the next morning just miraculously. And here was Joseph's first thought. And I don't know about you. I don't know if this would be my first thought. But his first thought is, maybe I told the story wrong. Maybe I got the details wrong. 
Like if it was me, I'd be like, my first thought is I'm going to a different village. Like that didn't work at all. And so all day long, he rehearsed how to tell the story the way he heard it. He wanted to make sure he got the details right because he was sure if, if they heard it the way he heard it, they would have the same joy that he had. And he goes back to the village and he shares the story again and again. They're filled with rage. And this time they beat him worse than before with the bob wire and the whips and the sticks. And, and they beat him to the point where they're sure they kill him. And they drag him out of the village again and they leave him in a ditch. And Joseph Amari, just the, the miracle power of God, wakes up the next morning. Beaten, bloody, bruised, hurting. And he says, I just got to tell him one more time. And he gets all the strength he can get and he goes back to the... And this is his village. He grew up with these people. These are brothers and sisters and people he's known his entire life. He goes back to the village and again, he begins to tell them the good news. There's this God that loves you so much. And again, they're, they're filled with anger and they begin to beat him. And right before he blacks out, he looks up and the women that were whipping him with this bob wire, he saw them begin to stop and they began to cry. He woke up the next day, not in a ditch. He woke up in his bed. And the women who were beating him are now nursing him and trying to save his life and, 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 and take care of him. And the entire village accepted this good news of this God that sent a son that loved them so much. All because he was willing to go at whatever it cost him because he received it with so much joy he had to share it with others. Let me ask you the question, what are you willing to do to share the gospel? What are you willing to do to go and make disciples? Imagine being a medical doctor and you're treating somebody and as you begin to diagnose them, you realize they have this life-threatening situation going on, but the good news is you could very easily treat it with this medicine. And you say to yourself, I don't want to tell this person they're going to die. That's so... I don't want to offend them like that. It's going to hurt their feelings. If I tell them they're going to die, that they've got this disease, it's going to destroy their identity. It's going to make them feel bad about themselves. I just can't bring myself to tell them that they're going to die. You know what they call that is medical malpractice. How many of us are committing spiritual malpractice? You see, the truth is, it is heaven or hell. There's no in between. And, and the people who we work with, the people who live next door to us, it's, if they don't know Jesus, it's heaven or hell. What are we doing about it? You see, Jesus began this mission on planet Earth, and then he turned it over to us. And you need to understand, there is no plan B. You're it. God doesn't have a plan B for Earth. He leaves us to carry out this great commission. So what's holding us back? Why do so few of us really live our life on mission? Why do, why do so few of us really live our life going and making disciples for the kingdom? Well, honestly, I believe it's, it's because of vision. We don't see clearly. You see, vision is the ability to see something clearly, to really see what's going on. And I think one of the challenges we have is we don't see lost people. Remember like that, that old movie, Sixth Sense? I see dead people. We don't see dead people. Or we don't see people as lost. We don't want to think about people as lost. 
And because we don't see lost people or think about people as lost, we're really not motivated to do anything about their eternity. Think about it like this. If you truly believe that hell was real, how would you live differently? If you truly believed it was real. You know, there's a story in the Bible where Jesus comes across a woman at the well. And what's so amazing about this story is Jesus crosses a racial barrier. He crosses a gender barrier. Jewish men, they don't associate with Samaritans. They, they, they hated the Samaritan race. They were total racist towards the Samaritans, let alone women. Jewish men never speak to women in public because it was just, you didn't do that. And here we've got a Samaritan woman and Jesus speaking to her in public. That's why we know the Bible is real. Can I just say right now, we know the Bible's not made up. Because if they made this up, they would have never put this story in the Bible. You don't put the leader of your religion doing something like this if you're trying to write something for people of this time period to follow. It makes no sense at all. But I love Jesus because he sees the value in every person. He doesn't care what race you are. He doesn't care what gender you are. Jesus sees the value in every person. And he comes across this woman, and she had a rough past. Jesus looked at her and he said, look, you've had five husbands. The guy you're living with now not even married to. He says, I'll be what you're looking for. What you're looking for, I'll give you living water that'll satisfy that thirst. You think all these guys are going to satisfy the thirst? You keep coming up empty. Come to me and I'll give you what you're really looking for. And so they have this conversation. And in John 4, it says, just then, I love the disciples. They're so much like us. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman, because again, you don't do this. And John, who's writing this gospel, he now does something that if you're ever writing a true story, you just don't do. You, you don't do this. And John does it. What is it? John adds a detail that never happened. You don't write about something that never happened if it never happened. It, it, but for whatever reason, John feels it's very important to tell you something that never actually happened. So, so John says, but no one asked, what do you want? Like no one did this, but John feels it's important to add this detail. No one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Now, why is he adding this detail? Because John's trying to teach us something right here. See, there's an important detail. The disciples did not ask Jesus, what do you want? Because the disciples did not care what Jesus wanted. They only cared about what they wanted. I don't know about you, but that stings for me. Because so often in my life, I find myself not really caring about what Jesus wanted because I'm too consumed with what I want. The disciples didn't ask, what do you want? Because they didn't care about, they were only thinking about themselves. And here's the point. If the disciples who are actually there like we're reading this 2,000 years later, the disciples were actually there. If they could miss the point, being totally unaware, right in the middle of the moment, is it possible for you and I to be totally unaware of what Jesus is doing in the moment? If they missed it and they were there, how often do we miss it? Like God is doing something like right in the midst of us. And we're totally unaware because we're not thinking about what he wants, we're only thinking about what we want. It says, then leaving her jar of water, the woman went back into the town. She's the very first evangelist in all of the Bible. And she said to the people, come and see a man 
that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the one that we've been longing for, hoping for? Is this, is this the one that could save us? That's why I love evangelism is it's so easy. You don't have to have a Bible degree to be an evangelist. You just have to say, come and see. Like, I don't have all the answers and I can't answer every question you have, but come and see. Come and see what this Jesus did for me. Could this be the Savior? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, again, I love the disciples. Meanwhile, I want you to think about this scenario. You've got an entire town coming to Jesus right now. An entire town who is spiritually hungry coming to find out if Jesus is the Messiah. A whole town of people. And look at the disciples. Rabbi, we're hungry. We want to go to In-N-Out, eat something. They totally missed what's happening. I mean, could you imagine if I was preaching right now and all of a sudden a hundred atheists walked in the back door and said, excuse me, we don't mean to interrupt the service, but you've got to tell us about this Jesus because we need to know him. And then I said, well, you're just going to have to wait. We've got, we've got more important things going on. I don't have time to... No, we would stop the service. And, and we would immediately begin to share the gospel with these people because they're hungry. They're, they're spiritually seeking. They want to know. That's what's taking place. You've got a whole town of people coming to Jesus and the disciples are thinking about food. They totally miss it. And so what Jesus often does is he takes what's happening and he turns it into a spiritual truth and he says to them, I have food that you know nothing about. Now, we understand what that means, but they didn't get it. And so we go into round two. The disciples said to each other, they're still thinking about food. Could someone have brought him food? I mean, there's a whole town of people wanting to come to Jesus, and they're thinking about food. And Jesus finally says, guys, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I love to eat too. There's nothing like a good cheeseburger. But right now, there's something more important happening. Right now, there's bigger priorities. Right now, there are people who are hungry to know me, and we need to stop thinking about our physical hunger and start thinking about their spiritual hunger because there's more important things going on. You see, we got to be careful that we don't get so inwardly focused we miss the moments. That, that we get so selfish we miss the mission, we miss the point. They're given an entire town of people ready to know God, but we get trapped into this pool of gravitational selfishness. Could be a neighbor, a coworker, friend, family member, somebody at the gym, the grocery store. But I mean, you know, we got hobbies and, and kids, they've got activities and got deadlines at work. And there's a lot going on that, you know, I, I, I hate to admit it, but I am so much like the disciples. This last week, my family and I and, and Josh, our, our director of operations, and his family and kids, we all went out of town for a couple days and got a hotel just to kind of relax and refresh a little bit after the Easter weekend and all the stuff that happened on Easter. And we're sitting there, and, and you know, I'm off the clock right now. Like, like, you know, I'm a pastor, but I'm on vacation, so it's like it's, it's, not, my, it's not my responsibility right now, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's sometimes, I, I hate to admit how selfish I can be, but I can be very, very selfish, and so we've got all of our boys, and all they want to do is skate parks. So our wives, they're getting to hang out at the pool all day, and, and we're driving boys around the skate parks all over town. And so we're at this skate park in the morning, and 
his kid's out there skating, and he's not, you know, he, he probably shouldn't have been there, didn't really know what he was doing, had his helmet on like half back, and I mean, he goes flying face plants and busts his head. I mean, he's got this like golf ball coming out of his forehead. I mean, it was nasty looking. And so we, we go down to help, and I'm carrying this kid to the car, and the whole time I'm carrying him to the car, I'm thinking, man, I need to pray for this kid before they take him. You know, she's going to take him to go get the CAT scan, you know, to, and the mom's freaking out, and I was like, I just need to pray for them before they leave. And I'm like, I'm off the clock, and I chickened out. And I hate admitting that. I really do. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad that I'm a pastor, and, and, and that's, that's where my mind was. Fortunately, Josh's son was with me, Bryce, a little 10-year-old. And, 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 and so I, I get the kid loaded in the car, and Bryce looks at me, you're not going to let him leave until we pray for him. Like, We've got to pray for this kid before he leaves. And I'm like, oh, man, then I felt even worse because I've got a 10-year-old doing what I should have done, what I knew I should have done the whole time. So like, now, now i got to do it, man. I can't back down in front of a 10-year-old. So I knock on the lady's window. I said, look, before you leave, can we just pray for your son quickly? And we prayed for him, and you could see her crying, and she was so touched about it. But I, I was like, I was thinking about me in that moment. I wasn't thinking about the moment that God put me in. And then later that night, we're back at the skate park. Again, we went to a lot of skate parks. We're back there late at night, and, and me and Josh are sitting there watching the boys skate, and we're just talking. All of a sudden, this other dad just starts talking our ear off. He's just talking, 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 talking. And, and again, I'm off the clock. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, you know, go there right now. Don't ask me what I do for a living. You know, I just, I just want to be a dad at the skate park and watch, watch the boys. And he's talking, 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 talking. And I'm just kind of, you know, chatting back. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, like I'm missing the moment. Again, I'm like the disciples. I'm thinking about food and there's a whole town coming to Jesus. And I'm, I'm totally oblivious to what God is doing in this moment. Thankfully, God, you know, wouldn't let me off the hook because this man who doesn't even know God, he wasn't missing the moment, even though me as the pastor was totally missing the moment. And he drops the bomb. He says, my wife of 22 years and I just finalized our divorce yesterday. And it was like, I missed the moment. Now, fortunately, God brought it back around and gave me an easy layup. And Josh and I were able to tell him about the Lord and tell him about getting back in touch with his Christian roots and his upbringing. And we got him connected with a great art church in his area and, and, and really were able to you know, turn the situation around. But I hate to admit that I am so selfish as a human being that I, as a pastor, even miss the moments that God has put me in. So Jesus goes on to say something totally monumental. He says, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? And this is a colloquialism from this time period that just means procrastination. You're just procrastinating. I tell you, open your eyes. Again, it's all about vision. What are you seeing? What are you seeing? Open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. You see, Jesus identified the problem that most of us have is we don't see it. And if we don't see it, we can't reach it. And if we don't see it, we don't feel responsible for it. I'm not responsible if I don't see it. So if I don't look, then I don't have to feel responsible. I don't know. I can live in my own little selfish bubble and just take care of me and mine and worry about my issues and my challenges and my life, and I don't have to think about anyone else. It's like being nearsighted. I'm actually nearsighted. A lot of you know this. I wear glasses when I'm driving and when I go to sporting events because I'm nearsighted. Nearsighted is a funny thing because it's the only condition where, where the doctors label you for what you do well, not what you don't do. So it's like, I, I got no problem seeing the near. I can read my iPad perfectly. I can't make out anyone after the second row. It's like all a blur. It's trees to me. 
And, and that's what happens to us spiritually. As we get spiritually nearsighted, we can see all of this perfectly. We just can't see anything out here. We're not opening our eyes. We're not seeing what Jesus is seeing, and it's dangerous. How do you know whether or not you're, spirit, you're spiritually nearsighted? Ask yourself this, this really hard, honest question. If God answered all of your prayers, all of them, everything you're praying for right now, would it change the world or just change you? God said yes to everything you're asking him right now. Would it change the world we live in or would it just change your life? Because again, if we're not careful, we're going to end up like the disciples and we're going to be worried about lunch and Jesus is seeing an entire village that wants to know him. So what is Jesus seeing? He's seeing the lost. He's actually distracted by the lost. He tells a story in Luke 15 about a good shepherd who will leave 99 found sheep to go look for one that is lost. If you've ever lost something that, that is important to you, like you lost your keys, I mean, you search frantically across your whole house trying to find your keys. You could care less about all of your found stuff when you've lost your keys. Like you're not looking around the house thinking, well, at least I know where the couch is. No, you're, you're focused. You're consumed with finding the thing that is lost. See, we have, we have a choice to make as a church family, as a community. We can design a church for the 99 that are found, or we can design a church for the one that's lost. We can design a church that's on mission. We can design a church that's on point, or we can design a church to make us feel good, to make us feel better. A place where we can come and enjoy God. You know, a couple years ago when my three-year-old son was just about two years old, we went to Legoland with his brother. His brother was 10 at the time. And his brother had kind of a school trip, all of his classmates. We were all at Legoland. And we went to that play area with like the castle and stuff. And they've got all these tube slides and nets and ropes and all different things. And you go into this area. And, and the, the two-year-old, man, he's quick. Like he'll take off on you. And he's just gone. He, he always wants to be with his older brother. And so he's running around with his older brother and all his older brother friends. So I'm just standing by the entrance, like guarding, because there's one way in, one way out. And I'm not going to let him escape you know, beyond me. And he's running around and it, it, you know, five minutes, I don't see him. I see the other boys running around. I don't see him. Finally, it hits that seven minute mark. As a parent, that seven minute mark is when the anxiety starts to setting. Like I haven't seen him in seven minutes now. I see all the other kids. I'm not seeing him. So I'm thinking, is he stuck in the net? Is he stuck in a pipe? Did he fall off the fence or, you know, crawl out of here? So like, like I'm starting to panic a little bit because I've not seen him anywhere and, and, and they're all running around. And so I gather up my older son and all of his classmates, and I said, guys, we've lost your brother. We are on a search and rescue mission right now. I want all of you to split up every direction, go through every slide, every pipe, every net, and you find your brother and you bring him home. And all of his classmates, they all took off, and they're going all throughout this play area looking for my lost son, except for one of his classmates who's sitting on the bench eating an ice cream. Can I tell you in that moment, he was not my favorite person in the world. Like I was, I'm like, look, my son is lost and you're thinking about ice cream. You put the ice cream down, you go find my lost son and then you can come back and finish your ice cream. And I wonder how often does God feel that way about us? You know, in North County, there are a lot of incredible churches in North County and that's wonderful. But do you realize you look at the homes around our church right now, over 80% of the people who live in this community do not go to any one of those churches, ever. That means 80% of this community 
without Christ is right now on their way to hell. What are we doing about it? Because it's real. And what are we doing to stop it? And I think sometimes God's looking at us and we're sitting on the bench in our churches eating ice cream and God's like, look, your lost brothers and your lost sisters, they are out there and somebody needs to go and somebody needs to reach them and somebody needs to rescue them. Open your eyes. Like I was, I was irritated to say the least at this kid's inactivity when all the other kids were looking. And I think sometimes God may, may feel irritated at our, our inactivity when we've got lost brothers and sisters around us dying. And I'm telling you, when you buy into this, when you understand the importance of this, when you, when you, when you say yes to this great commission, it's actually the best thing you can do for your life. See, here's the way Jesus put it. If you insist on saving your life, if you, it's all about you, what you want, making your life better, making you more comfortable. If it's all about you, you're going to lose your life. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be empty. You're never going to be satisfied. There's never going to be enough. You're never going to feel fulfilled. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of of the good news, will ever know what it really means to live. I'm telling you, when Joseph Armari's entire village came to Christ, he had a feeling like you can't, you can't match that anywhere else. You can win the lottery, you wouldn't feel that good. Take any drug, you wouldn't feel that good. There's no sexual experience that'll ever make you feel that good. When his village came to Christ, it was the greatest feeling of satisfaction you can ever possibly imagine. And every time you bring somebody to Jesus... Every time you bring someone, it's the greatest, most rewarding feeling you'll ever have. There's, there's nothing in this world that can compare to knowing that you helped change somebody's eternal destiny. You didn't just impact their life for a few years on earth. You made a difference for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 million years of their existence. There's nothing in life that rewarding. It's the key to a fulfilled life. So here's the big question that we end with. One of our board members always asks this. And it's a challenging question, but I think we all need to think about it, especially in light of the fact that followers fish. That, that one of the indications that you're following Jesus is you're fishing. You're fishing, you're catching fish, you're bringing people to heaven. So here's the question. Who's going to be in heaven because of you? Who's going to be in heaven because of you? What neighbor is going to be in heaven because you live next door to them? What coworker is going to be in heaven because you worked in the same company as them? Who's going to be in heaven because of you? It's one of the most important questions you'll ever ask. Look, I'm all about the church helping people have a better marriage and helping people find more peace in the middle of storms. That's all great. But can I tell you, you can go to hell with a good marriage and you can go to heaven with a bad marriage. I'm all about helping people's marriages. But we've got one mission. We've got one priority, and that's finding our lost brothers and sisters and bringing them home. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And the reality is we might be the only Jesus they ever see. The Jesus that's living inside of you right now might be the only Jesus your neighbor ever sees, might be the only Jesus your coworker ever sees. And it is heaven and hell. It is life and death, and we have a responsibility to go and do our part.